It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. I just clicked on this button to hit record for this week's episode of the show before the show, and there's a thing that says recognize hand gestures. If I click that and you give like a thumbs up, what does that do? Does it do anything? It suggested a hand, a hand like waving or a thumb up. It's not doing anything. I'm done with this episode. <laughs> it's it's amazing that we're still learning new things about Zoom. Yeah, I know. After after low these many years. Well, I'm turning that feature off because it didn't do anything. Uh, well, welcome into the latest episode of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball, uh, a professional start as always. My name is Tyler Mon. Uh, three different time zones this week. Benjamin Hill out of New York City. Samuel Collins Dykstra in the uh, Phoenix area. Where exactly are you staying in the Phoenix? Not don't give us the address, but like what what city are you staying in? Yeah, you're trying to dox me here on air, Tyler. Jesus. <laughs> Have people flooding to the MLB pipeline pad. Uh, I am in technically in Scottsdale. Okay. Um, which is very close to Scottsdale Stadium, obviously, and also Salt River Fields at Talking Stick. Um, both of those are like within a 15-minute drive from here. Mesa also not very far. If you're looking at AFL clubs, uh, I'm in the East Valley. But today I will be driving to Peoria on the west side, obviously going to the surprise later as well. And uh, there is a AFL triple header in Goodyear this year, which will be a new ballpark for me when it comes to Arizona spring training ballpark. So all over the Valley, but currently in Scottsdale. Ben, how are things? Uh, you look like you're in a very nice uh, room today in the office. Looks like a good view out there. Yeah. You know, sixth Avenue right behind me, uh, radio city across the street. I'm here in the office in the Frank Robinson uh, conference room. And if you played Wordle today, uh, he was, he could have been, he was, I think he was the top answer for uh, players who played for, the Angels and the Reds. Interesting, huh? I uh, I have yet to. I haven't done it yet. I haven't attempted the the sports wordle thing. The immaculate grid. Immaculate. Oh, did grid. I call it wordle? Did I call it? Yeah. Wordle? I couldn't. I, I couldn't like, remember what it was called. Immaculate yeah. grid. I haven't done it. I feel like I'll lose so many hours of my life. You know, like I'm just gonna get. I'm just gonna get sucked into a vortex with it. So I haven't done it yet, but I'm assuming at some point I will. The offseason is coming, Tyler. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Uh, well, we welcome you into this latest episode of the official podcast of Minor League Baseball. we got a lot to talk about on uh, the show today. We are going to uh, kick things off. We're going to talk a little MLB postseason um, just for, you know, the fact that we've got uh, a Phillies fan who is – one win away from his team reaching another National League Championship Series. Three teams already decided for the League Championship Series. we got an all-Texas junior circuit matchup with the Texas Rangers and the Houston Astros. Uh, and then on the national league side, uh, because it is October, the Los Angeles Dodgers are out. So uh, the Arizona diamondbacks have moved on to the national league championship series with a sweep of the Dodgers. Um, and we'll, we'll find out among Philly and Atlanta who is moving on. Ben, how you feeling? Yeah, I'm feeling well, you know, it's uh 
Yeah, you know, I'm a Phillies fan, obviously, uh, since I grew up uh, from not from birth, but essentially from uh, from as far as long as I can remember. Let's just say that I always do feel a little, um, you know, self-conscious through the years because, you know, I cover minor league baseball, nothing on the major league side. And I try to just keep, you know, being a Phillies fan intact. But still, you know, I cover Phillies affiliates, all that. I always try to I don't want anyone to accuse me of just like saying, oh, yeah, of course you wrote an article about that. They're a Phillies affiliate. And no one has. So I guess I'm doing a good job uh, not being overtly biased. And, uh, yeah, as a fan, it's nice. You spend uh, all season immersed in the minor leagues and then uh, minor leagues end. And when the Phillies in the playoffs, it's fun to kind of revert back more to what I was like as a kid. And just get really into it. Um, haven't been to a game yet. Hopefully they, you know, we're recording this on Thursday. Hopefully they win tonight and move on. Um, but it's just really fun. I mean, what can you say about the playoffs? Except it's really, really fun. And um, it's, I'm kind of sick of hearing it. I think all fans are just like what an element uh, the home crowd brings to it and how over the top they are. And um, yeah, it's been talked about, I think, enough at this point, but it really speaks to something <laughs> that, that it's it's the Philadelphia crowd that does that, brings that energy from start to finish. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to go to a World Series game last year, and it really was like you you do not sit down from mo- from the first pitch to the last, and it just never lets up. And even with postseason crowds in other cities, I don't think it's generally that intense and certainly watching TV on other uh, in the other ballparks, there is this kind of hometown pride part of me is like, ah, they're not bringing it the way Philly is. Man, I will say not to call out a fan base or anything, but the the D-backs Dodgers game last night, the D-backs had first and third, two outs, bottom of the fifth, and still a relatively, you know, close game. I think it was three nothing at that point. It was like a library in there. It's the bottom of the fifth. You've got a man 90 feet away. You got two runners on. Big situation in a, a game in which you can sweep the team that is your right. There was so little energy. You would have if if I would have just turned on that game and had no idea what time of year it was, I would have thought, like, oh, this is a Tuesday evening contest in June. Like it was so, and then you watch those games in Philly and you're like, oh, right. This is what it's supposed to be like. So, uh, kudos. And I'm honestly, uh, I, I admire a little bit that you're like, yeah, it's been talked about a lot. Like it, those fans are so great that you're like, you're almost like a little bashful over like, yes, we know how awesome it is <laughs> yes, in Philly. Yes. Like, sorry, Arizona, but God, you got to bring it more than that. That was brutal. The only thing I'll say about Arizona is <clears throat> I think a lot of Dodgers fans made the trip. I was going to say, nobody's a D-backs fan there. No, I mean, there are D-backs fans here. One of my best friends' uh, wives is from Arizona. She's a diehard Diamondbacks fan. She listens to this podcast sometimes, and she is going to murder me for that. (laughs) Hey, you brought it upon yourself, man. Nobody (laughs) was asking for your takes on D-backs fans. I just think there was some stuff made about how Dodgers fans were going to travel for that series. So I'm sure the split was not as big as it would be at Phillies, which I'm sure is probably like 99 to 1 Phillies fans versus Braves fans. Um, but yeah, it's been killer to watch. I mean, it's been so cool. And my main takeaway, thought you mentioned all those teams that have made the LCS so far. They're the ones with the pitching, you know, like yeah. you, you look at what the Dodgers as good as they've been all year, they don't really have the pitching. And if Clayton Kershaw is going to get lit up, like he has this October and I don't want to get into that discourse, but like, if he's not going to be your ace, they didn't really have that much to fall back on as much as I like Bobby Miller and some of their really young arms. Um, you look at the Orioles, you know, I love Grayson Rodriguez. I love what he's been able to do, 
this year coming back after he was optioned. But he's just one starter for the Orioles, and he, you know, laid an egg in game two of the LDS. And as good as as broad as their hitting base is, you know, Gunnar Henderson only gets four or five at bats a game. Adley Rushman only gets four or five bats a, a game. They I want to see those teams invest in pitching moving forward or you know really try to make moves at the deadline. The Orioles didn't really do that. They brought in Jack Flaherty. Um, that that was their big move, but you know, I would have who knows? They could have gone and gone and got Justin Verlander, maybe. Maybe they could have talked him into exercising, you know, or waiving his no trade clause to go to that team and really putting them over the edge. But yeah, I hope that's the main takeaway from this series. I mean, you look at like the D backs, even when they have a start yesterday from Brandon Fott, which didn't go deep into the game, their bullpen really came through. And guess who closed it out? It was Paul Sewell, who they acquired at the trade deadline. They made from a team that was in contention, as we, uh, as we discussed last week or a couple weeks ago. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it is. It is really kind of wild to look at the Los Angeles Dodgers and think like, ah, that team just didn't have pitching. Like that is with the amount of talent that they have developed, and obviously they've been dealing with injury issues and Walker Bueller being out, and you know all the things that have that have gone on with that uh, Dodger staff. But man, it is. Uh, I got some some very uh, in his feels texts from a uh, friend of the show, Jason Schwartz, the, uh, the former uh, radio voice of the Lancaster Jetthawks and the, the Lake Elsinore storm uh, long time, uh, you know, lifelong Los Angelino and Dodgers fan. And he was like, man, it just like, he was like, I know that it's, it's tough to hear somebody complain about this when your team has had this much success uh, overall, but it's really rough watching your team get into the postseason and do this every year. And I should have sent back like the little violin, uh, <laughs> Um, I mean, that's the thing, too, is that like Mookie Betts didn't hit this right. series. Freddie Freeman right. didn't Freddie hit. Freddie Freeman didn't hit. Uh, J.D. Yeah. Martinez, I think, was the only one of those four players in the lineup who had 100 plus RBIs this season. I believe J.D. Martinez was the only one to drive in a run. Uh, and that's, I mean, you can't have that happen either. If you're not going to pitch, you got to be able to hit. And those guys didn't hit. Um, right. But yeah, looking at the uh, at the start of the season, out of the National League West, I do not think many people would have picked the Arizona Diamondbacks to be the team uh, that had moved on to the National League Championship Series. I also don't think a whole lot of people would have picked that the American League East would go 0-7 in playoff games and that the three teams from the American League East would be the three teams not named the Boston Red Sox and New York Yankees, uh, which is also pretty wild. Fifth year in a row that the World Series will be held in Texas. Uh, seven straight American League Championship Series appearances now for the Houston Astros. Uh, but I do want to touch on, and this is something that we talked about before we got started. We're obviously going to get into our usual topics, and we're talking with Ben here uh, momentarily about what he's got on the site and coming to the site. But this whole Bryce Harper, Orlando Arcia thing, um, this is this is interesting. And, and we're three guys who have you know reported on baseball, been in clubhouses, done all this stuff. The the long story short version for anybody who hasn't heard, uh, Bryce Harper makes, you know, what one could construe as a base running error that turns into a double play on a spectacular catch from Michael Harris, the second that ends game two. Bryce Harper was around second base. Could have been the tying run if that ball gets over Michael Harris's head. Uh, it doesn't. Harris makes an incredible catch. Really, Austin Riley's play on the back end of that catch to get the double play at first base, I think was as impressive as the catch itself. But then apparently in the postgame afterwards, in the clubhouse, Orlando Arcia was yelling out, a boy Harper, or something similar. It was reported, uh, and it has now turned into a thing with a capital A and a capital T. 
last night in game three, Bryce Harper hits two homers. He stares down Orlando Arcia. Arcia looked crestfallen in the clubhouse post game when he was asked about it. Uh, and he essentially said like, yeah, I thought it was, uh, you know, I thought in the clubhouse, what you say stays there and it's a sacred place and blah, blah, blah. Travis Darno is now out there saying that it's going to make players want to talk to the media less. We all have our thoughts. Ben, I want to go to you on this because um, you obviously have got experience, you know, interviewing players. Yes, but also being on the the front office side, you've got a different look at the the landscape. How, how did you view this whole thing? Uh, and aside from the fact that Bryce Harper stared down of Orlando RC, was like the coolest sports photo I've ever seen in my life. Uh, how <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on this whole thing? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it contributed to good theater and that's why everyone's talking about it. And that's what people want. And um, I think the sort of ethic debate is just secondary to the fact that people, especially in the postseason, when you have a lot of casual fans jumping on, you want storylines, you want narratives. So um, so everyone was talking about it. And that was all the talk of the postgame shows, you know, after the game. And I, and I get that, uh, you know, for me, you know, everyone has a different role to play. One, you know, working in minor league baseball you know, there's not too much I could report that would, I think, you know, set the world on fire in terms of uh, any sort of scoop. But then, too, um, you know, the combination of writing for, you know, the official minor league website and, you know, keeping relationships so I can continue to have, you know, material, you just use a lot of discretion. You know, I'm not saying I've been privy to anything that is, you know, truly deeply controversial. But of course, you know, through years of covering the industry and, you know, industry events and the winter meetings. I mean, have I heard all sorts of conversations or things said that would be really interesting to report on or sources confirm or, um, of course, but what does that really get me? Um, you know, things happen when things happen, they happen and I'll, I'll report on them then. But for me, um, it just has not made sense to, to burn any bridges and, you know, I don't do as much player stuff, but you know, same thing. I've been in clubhouses and seen, off color, you know, graffiti on uh, cinder block walls and, uh, you know, overheard stray snippets of dialogue where you're kind of like, woof. But I also feel like, hey, it's a bunch of minor league guys spending a lot of time together. It's going to get juvenile sometimes. Who cares? Why am I going to blow up anybody's spot? Um, and it's not of interest. It's not a postseason narrative that can unite people. It would just be basically calling someone or a team out for no particular reason than to embarrass them. And I just don't see the point in that. I do yeah, like that, that description yeah. that it's that it's theater. It makes for great, the, especially in the postseason. I think that's a that's a very good description. Sam, sorry, I cut you off. No, no, that's exactly what I was going to say as well. I mean, I think it's the postseason part that is the giant separator here. There is so much media in that clubhouse. It's one thing, and we've all been in minor league clubhouses, often where we're the only media members there. Let's be frank about that. I mean, it's a much different situation there. It's like you are the only person. They are not used to somebody being in that clubhouse necessarily. The postseason horse of a different color completely everybody in that room is open to press you allow members of the press to come in and everybody in there is a microphone unless you go up to them and say hey here's a deal this right. is off the record you agree this is off the record then you can proceed and say whatever you want and be like and tra trash bryce harper and have it not be printed but if the press is allowed in and you say something around them in the postseason, where there's not just the local guys, there are national folks, there are international folks, there are so many people in that room waiting to report on anything you say. It's fair game. I'm sorry. Right. Like, unless they want to say from the outset, anything is off the record unless it's said on the, the press stand, which I hope never happens. Like, I'm not 
asking for that to happen. But the agreement is it's open press once those doors open. Um, so Orlando Garcia made a mistake. Let's be honest. That's what happened here. He thought he could say it and he can't, or he shouldn't have. He can. I'm not saying he can't. Yeah. Constitutionally, that says he can't do it. It's banter. That's right. Brandon. Brandon Marsh had like the most level-headed approach to this, which came before the game. He said, "Listen, this is two NL East clubs going up against each other. Yeah. There's going to be banter. We see exactly. each other a lot, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, you can debate whether Bryce Harper made a boneheaded play by rounding second. I like the way you put it, Tyler. I think it was aggressive. I think he was trying to win his team the game, give him give his uh, team a chance if he scores on that out. play if that ball gets over michael harris's head and he scores on that play all we hear the next day is about what a heads-up aggressive baseball play it was and honestly we've already seen that this postseason yeah. from bryce right. harper he ran through a stop sign to score a run and that was the aggression that's the aggression we love right. from bryce harper that's what makes him a great player so it didn't work out that time he got some you know crap from from the other side that's the right. way it, it works and he responded like i'm sorry it's yeah. difficult to hit a baseball Nobody needs extra motivation to be like, I'm going to send this one 420 feet instead of try to hit it for a double. It's right. difficult to hit a homer. Right. Bryce Harper is capable of doing that, whether you give him bulletin board material or not. This is like a fun thing to talk about, but like in terms of journalistic ethics or, yeah. you know, should this change the way the game is covered? No, absolutely right. not. It, that's that's if where anything, it, it, should, it should change how Orlando Garcia thinks he can talk in front of people, but. That's it. it That's this where it is becomes much ridiculous. smaller story than yeah. When when the when it first came out, I thought like, man, I kind of see Arcia's point here. Like, I see why he would be upset. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, wait a minute, this happened in an open clubhouse. This dude is yelling this and upset that somebody's going to take that quote and run with it. Um, or and it's not as though Orlando Arcia is like a dude who got you know called up after a bunch of time in the minors and he's playing in his first big league games. And they happen to be in the postseason, but he's been a big leaguer since 2016. Like Orlando Arcia was a top 10 overall prospect for us going into the 2015 season. He was number eight overall, I think. This is a guy who was known for a very long time. What the spotlight is like and will always be like. And to come out with like, oh, I thought the clubhouse was sacred. No, not when media is in there. That's the whole point of having the media in there. And, yeah. you know, for Travis Darno, like for him saying that it's going to make players more cautious about talking to the media. I don't, I don't really see that happening. I don't see most players. I think would look at it and say, if you didn't want that reported on, you can't say it when the media is in the clubhouse. It would be one thing if a reporter had overheard something outside the doors of a closed clubhouse and reported it. But if you're just yelling this out in a room full of media members, I don't really know what you expect to happen. And the thing that I also like, you know, touching again on what Ben said is like, it's such a harmless, fun baseball theater drama thing. Like it's not, it's not something sinister. It's not something ugly. It's like, ah, oh, this guy talked trash. And then the next day, the next, the other dude who he was talking trash about hit two homers and stare. Like, it's just such fun baseball postseason drama. And I love it. Uh, yeah. but yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to get all up in my feels about like, oh, they shouldn't have reported the thing he said in front of all the reporters covering the game. Like, come on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what this comes down to is it's just the back and forth of baseball. Yeah. yeah. What, a guy said a thing, a player responded on the field, the other team responded to what happened. Right. And we're just going to let this be. Yeah, it and just these, makes this series so much more fun and interesting and whatever. And that's, it's it's following a script in right, some ways. Right. 
and these dudes, you know, like you said, they're in the same division. They see each other nine months out of the year. You know, I know we don't have the unbalanced schedules anymore, but um, yeah, it's, you know, it's just fun, man. I like it. I like the drama. Um, All right. Well, let's talk about some minor league baseball related things. Obviously we are uh, through and clear and finished with our 2023 season of minor league baseball, but does not mean that all of the best minor league baseball content is not still coming your way. And of course, so much of the share of all of that greatest content comes from our very own Benjamin Hill, who's cranking through some stories he's got uh, from Indianapolis and elsewhere, including one about, I would assume by far the longest tenured radio broadcaster in the minor leagues. And I would also assume somebody who could probably make an argument to being the longest tenured ever in minor league baseball. Uh, Ben, I don't, there's probably a very difficult uh, set of parameters to nail that down, but Indianapolis has been listening to the same voice uh, calling their team's games for almost 50 years. And that is a very unique thing in the minors. Yeah. I'm working on a story right now about that broadcaster, Indianapolis Indians, Howard Kelman, um, Victory Field, home of the Indianapolis Indians. They were my, well, here we go, penultimate stop uh, in my 2023 ballpark travels. And um, before the game, I was like, I'm going to interview Howard Kelman. I mean, he's been with the same minor league team since 1974. Uh, I know Jim Weber with Toledo has been, is just about that as well, maybe 1975. As you guys know, I think as a lot of listeners know, it can be very tough to quantify things in minor league baseball, the longest this, the greatest that the best this record keeping is uh very hard to come by you know and as recently as 2004 in a lot of cases uh when uh milb.com debuted on the scene and it was all standardized um but anyway 1974 um he's entering uh his 50th in, in april he will broadcast a game howard kelman will broadcast a game you know on the 50th anniversary of his first game with the same club so uh, i got a story on him coming out next week and you can read about all uh, you know how he got the job his career path how the franchise has changed and and i do like it because you know the international league is you know one of the longest running uh most historic most iconic in all of minor league baseball in terms of these um you know some of these cities that have baseball going back such a long way you know buffalo rochester um, and of course, Indianapolis, you know, the Indianapolis Indians, they have been the Indianapolis Indians, like same team name going back to 1902, <laughs> you know, 1902. Uh, so to have continuity with that, and then as well as that continuity to have the same guy in the broadcast booth now for coming up on 50 years, um, it just speaks to how deeply rooted, uh, you know, Indianapolis and that team is, you know, within minor league baseball at large. And, uh, you know, just big picture. I hadn't been to the ballpark in nine years, uh, Victory Field, and I was there on a uh, Saturday night in September. And just like in Louisville the night before, I was a little concerned going in, like, hey, it's September. Um, you know, school started, football season. Maybe the crowds won't be as great, but just a great crowd in Indianapolis on a Saturday night. That ballpark's pretty much in the heart of downtown. You know, I stayed in a downtown hotel, walked there. Uh, walked past the uh, Capitol building on the way, the NCAA headquarters are right around there. There's a state park with a lot of outdoor activities. Um, and one of the most prominent features of this uh, downtown backdrop at Vic- Victory Field is a Marriott, a Marriott, excuse me, hotel. And uh, it's in the in left field and it just dominates uh, the view from the ballpark. It opened, I think, in about 2011. And when I was there, they had this massive Indianapolis Colts artwork on the wall and it said for the shoe. And uh, I guess shoe, horseshoe, Colts wear horseshoes. Um, But it was one of the most uh, striking, (laughs) striking uh, 
hotels I've ever seen. And that's right there at Victory Field. And of course, before or after the game, you can go to St. Elmo, the legendary steakhouse, and get one of their uh, iconic shrimp cocktails. There's a lot to do around there. And uh, Victory Field, 1996, it opened. So, you know, better part of 30 years now, but it does not feel like an older ballpark. You have plenty of room to move, you know, great scoreboard, tons of group areas, um, you know, downtown backdrop, as I said. And I just had the the sense that that franchise is just really um, doing as well as it ever has. And uh, it was great to to be there and to see that and to take in that combination of history and uh, current, you know, modern day um, just energy and spirit. And they're a Pirates affiliate, of course. They were playing as the Young Bucks the night I was in town, as in Bucks, as in Buckos, as in a slang for Pirates. They were wearing yellow Young Bucks uniforms. And um, yeah, I, I just really enjoyed it. And I'm getting sad that I'm not going to have too much road trip stuff to talk about coming up. Uh, I only went to one place after Indianapolis, and that was Columbus. And uh, pretty soon I'm going to have to stop uh, living off my in-season content because I'm going to run out of it. But we are not there yet. We are definitely not there yet. And uh, so let's keep talking about these ballpark visits. I'm going to have stuff keep coming out about it and uh, keep an eye out for that Howard Kelman story. Uh, Victory Field overall write-up on MILB.com on Friday, the day this podcast comes out. It's also in my newsletter, Ben's Biz Beat. Please subscribe to that. And uh, I'm going to keep that uh, ballpark road trip stuff coming as long as I can, as I said. So stick with me. And what else do we have going on in the world of baseball except for, you know, the playoffs? Let's talk about minor league ballparks instead. All right, Ben. Well, uh, in addition to that, uh, we also have one other news item um, that kind of affects our purview, sort of doesn't. But we uh, learned recently that uh, the Princeton squad uh, in the Appalachian League will no longer be in the Appy League after 2023. Now, obviously, there have been so many changes with the structure of minor league baseball. Uh, the Appy League, not an affiliated minor league anymore, uh, but the Princeton Whistle Pigs, uh, formerly the Princeton Rays, who were a, a rookie-level affiliate uh, of the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, kind of a surprise here in that Princeton will no longer be part of the Appalachian League. I would say more so a surprise because it seems to have happened on really short notice. But what's the latest? What are you hearing about this? Yeah, I don't know much really about this yet. Um, just that it was announced yesterday. Uh, some local Princeton or West Virginia you know, news outlets picked it up. Um so, you know, waiting to hear a little bit more specifics, but it sounds like, um, you know, there's, there was uh, ballpark renovations that needed to be done. And and this team, even by Appalachian League standards, uh, you know, had a very bare bones, no frills ballpark and, um, you know, never particularly drew well in recent years, um, you know, kind of sitting on bleachers in a high school like stadium. I love those kind of environments that they were hosting, you know, minor league baseball all the way through 2019 and then converted along with the rest of the Appy League to Woodbat. Um but it is the kind of environment that was just kind of barely hanging on with basically local um, you know, donors and, and local supporters, you know, doing all they could to keep baseball afloat. And I just think uh, the upgrades needed for the stadium are, are not quite enough uh, to keep that going. You know, the, the team was the Princeton Rays uh, for many years prior to, um, you know, when Appy League was still affiliated. I got to visit there in 2016. Uh, you know, we were talking about this before uh, before we started recording this, but uh, Jim Holland ran that team for decades, I think from 1988 all the way to 2015, and um, you know really helped to bring stability to Princeton's uh, Appy League franchise. And then the year I visited in 2016, they had one front office member full time total 
and it was a guy who had just graduated college, Nick Carey. And man, I respected him that season to come right out of college and then be in charge of an affiliated team and be the only full-time employee at like 22, 23 years old. But that was sort of the, the, the operating style in the Appy league. And especially one of the, uh, you know, have not teams, even within a rookie level context. Um, so it, it, it just, it, it also speaks to what a labor of love it was, you know, just to keep it going, you know, I think this long and um, you know, I wish them the best going forward with, with that ballpark, uh, with that community. Hopefully there's still more baseball to come. I don't know what this means for the Appy league uh, yet going forward in terms of now that it's a nine team league, if there will be a 10th team, if they somehow find a way to do it with nine teams, which does have precedent, uh, the Pulaski in about 2008 or nine dropped out of the league uh, prior to all those ballpark renovations. And they, they got it done with the nine team schedule back then. It helps that there's uh, so much proximity in the Appy league that teams could literally play like double headers, but against different opponents, you know, a day game against one team and then travel somewhere else to kind of try to even up that schedule. Anyway, I have no idea what's going to happen with all of that, but the Princeton whistle pigs, formerly the Princeton rays look like they're no longer and it's always sad to see a team go. And also shout out to the Princeton Rays mascot for many years, Roscoe the Rooster, who I did a story on, who even has his own Ben's Biz uh, Tops Pro debut card. Um, he talked. I did a full interview with a talking rooster in Princeton, West Virginia, and I'll never forget that. And then not only that, when he was not at the ballpark, Roscoe the Rooster was an, on the amateur wrestling circuit. And there are pictures you can look up of this mascot for an Appy League team. Uh, fighting against opponents in, um, you know, pretty uh, low-level amateur wrestling circuits. And uh, he really put the moves on the Cuban assassin. That was his main enemy. And I don't know what the relationship of those two is now, but I hope Roscoe is doing well. I hope the Cuban assassin is doing well. And um, we'll see what the future holds for Princeton, West Virginia, and uh, for the Appy League going forward. I do. Uh, I mean, obviously that story made quite an impact on us because as soon as you said, uh, oh yeah, I wrote a story about the the mascot there. Sam and I were like, oh yeah, wasn't it the one that talked? Didn't he wrestle? Like we remembered all of the details of that story. Yeah. Certain things are so out there and unique and it was always the kind of story I love to come across on my road trips where you just have that moment. You know, sometimes I'm like, hey, is this a story? I'll talk to this person. I'll talk to that person. Maybe this will develop into something. And then sometimes you're just like, yo, there's the talking rooster mascot. Let's go. I feel like Can I talk to the chicken. I think I should talk to the chicken. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely talking to the chicken. That is amazing. Uh, Benjamin Hill, you can find, uh, of course, on social media at Ben's Biz and V Ben's Biz. And uh, thanks, man. We'll catch up next week. We will. We will catch up next week and likely the week after that. So I'm assuming let's so. keep it rolling. Let's do it. Thanks, Ben. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, Sam. Well, it's time to talk a little on-field stuff uh, in a prospect context, and that is in Arizona, where you are, as the Arizona Fall League is uh, off and running here in 2023. Tell us about the trip so far, uh, what it's been like, what you're seeing, who you're covering just you take the ball and run with it now. So. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a fun trip so far. We're talking here on Thursday. So I, I got here on Sunday, uh, been covering games ever since. Um, did a doubleheader yesterday in Scottsdale and Salt River. Um, so pretty close by. They're within 15-minute drive of each other. Um, love being able to do that. I, I will say what I say every year. If you have the opportunity to get out here, if you live in the Phoenix metropolitan area, go to the fall league games. Like they, they really do feel like a minor league all-star game every night. Um, especially some of these teams. I mean, it, Peoria in particular is really, really loaded right now. They started out the season seven, Oh, and one. Uh, I think through those first eight games, they had scored 88 runs, which led the AFL by 33. Second place was 55 runs. Yeah, that's um, pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. good. Uh, I was talking to Harry Ford about that Mariners number two prospect. Uh, Sir Harry Ford. Soon to be. Fun. Yeah, Sir Harry Ford. Yeah, he uh, he had just played in the European Championship on October 1st. Great Britain fell to Spain. Great Britain won silver medal in the European Championship, which is a big deal. Uh, first time That's in a long time, I think. Best finish ever. Yeah, first time in a long time that either the Netherlands or Italy had not won. Yeah. Which is a great yeah. sign for baseball in general. Only four countries have ever won the European Championships, uh, and the Netherlands and Italy have won like a combined 40-some of the 55 or however many that have been uh, awarded. Anyway. Yeah, so, I mean, it was a crazy schedule for him, but I, I remember I talked to him on a night when which he homered twice, which is the first time he's ever done that in his pro career. Uh, and I was asking, like, what is this lineup like? They put up a 17 spot that night. They had scored 18 runs in a game earlier in the AFL season. And he just looked at me. He's like, he laughed and said, as you can see, I'm batting eighth, <laughs> which I love from multiple angles because, A, it's like an understanding of Harry Ford and himself. The guy batted leadoff for Great Britain. He's he's going to bat second, third, fourth, yeah. fifth. He's going to be in the heart of, of the lineup pretty much every team he plays for here on out. Uh, until he makes the major leagues, and then we'll see how things go. But for him to be like, listen, I'm not a number eight hitter. I'm a number eight hitter here. Uh, certainly tells you something about that Peoria team. Uh, and they have maybe – well, I, I don't want to say maybe. He has been the most productive hitter so far in the fall league for me. It's Jacob Marcy, San Diego Padres prospect. Um, as of as we're sitting here right now, he's got a 516 average through the first week and a half. His OPS is a league best. 1.493. He's got 16 hits, which leads the league by three. Um, he's always been a guy who has a really discerning eye. He's always going to be a threat to post an OBP above 400. It's just a really strong line drive approach. It's not something that you're going to see a ton of power out of Jacob Marcy, I don't think. Um, but the fact that he's taken that stroke to the fall league this quickly has been really special. And because it's a line drive approach, this is not somebody who's just taking advantage of hitter-friendly environments because the AFL – is a hitter friendly place. You can get the ball up some of these places and just let the dry air, let the ball carry. Um, that's not what's happening here. The, this is a guy just who's really doing this tremendous job at spraying the ball around. And somebody who was already on my radar, certainly uh, as somebody who performed ball at high end double A this year in the Padre system. But if that pure hit tool is playing here, that's an even bigger sign. I mean, he's going to climb up a few spots uh, in the Padre system when we do a re rank this offseason. But it's going to be really fascinating to see where he lands eventually because that Padre system is much deeper than I think people give it credit for or thought it was a few months ago uh, after the Juan Soto trade. Just think what the, what it could be if James Wood was still in there. Yeah. Uh, how good that system would be. And Harleen Susana, uh, among others. Robert Hassel III as well. Um, not that they should complain about having Juan Soto. It's great to have Juan Soto. I right. It didn't work out this year. 
But still, um, that Padre system has done a really tremendous job at refilling itself. Um, another standout was a guy I talked to last night, in fact, was Kyle Manzardo of the Cleveland Guardians. You want to talk about somebody moved in a trade. He was moved midseason uh, from the Tampa Bay Rays uh, in a d- deadline swap. He comes over to the Guardians, becomes immediately their best first base prospect. But he was injured at the time. He was batting a shoulder injury. Didn't really debut for Columbus until a few weeks after the deadline. And he even mentioned to me it took a few days for him to really feel comfortable again because of all that rest and rehab that was going going on, both in the race system and the, the Guardian system after the trade for Aaron Savali. But once he caught on, he really caught on late. I think 13 of his of 16 hits – he had for Columbus in the month of September went for extra bases. Uh, he's always been a hit over power guy. So the fact that power is playing pretty well so far has been interesting. And that's carried to the fall league uh, sitting here on Thursday. He's homered in each of his last three games. His most recent homer was a 460 foot shot according to Statcast. So this is something that is pretty accurate at measuring this stuff. 460 feet out to right field at salt river. Um, it's the farthest homer hit so far in the fall league as measured by StatCast, which is measuring games at all Salt River home games this season. Um, it was an absolute tank. He talked to me about it. He was looking slider. He got a slider. It met his barrel perfectly, and he just kind of let it carry. Uh, but if Kyle Manzardo is letting this power play as well as he is right now, he would already should have been an option for Cleveland heading into next spring. Um, just because of his major league proximity he spent when he did play this year, he, he was playing at AAA. Uh, and like I said, was very productive in the second half. But if if it's playing even better now, you look at that Cleveland roster, the Guardians were dead last in home runs in the major leagues last year. They need some power help. They traded away Josh Bell uh, this season. So they they need a little bit of extra juice in that lineup. Kyle Manzardo could certainly provide that if he continues to let this power play. So we'll see how things are going to go for him the rest of the way as we sit here right now. He is atop the AFL leaderboard in home runs with three. Uh, he's tied with four other guys, Wes Clark, Harry Ford, the aforementioned, uh, Graham Pauly, who we will get to in a little bit, and Michael Troutwine. Um, so a few guys have three homers, but Kyle Manzardo certainly standing out as far as that goes. Um, some other standouts. I haven't seen a ton of great pitching so far, but one of my favorite stories that I wrote was Zach Penrod of the uh, Boston Red Sox system. Zach Penrod, just a few months ago, was pitching an indie ball. The Red Sox called him up and said, hey, we need high A pitching help. Are you willing to sign with us and kind of help Greenville down the stretch? He was like, absolutely. I've, I've never played an affiliated ball yet. Um, I would like to get that opportunity. So they called him up. He had a 2.18 ERA in 20 and two-thirds regular season innings for Greenville. He was the club's winning pitcher in the South Atlantic League championship clincher. And then they said you know what? We actually really do like what you've showed us so far. We'd like to see a little bit more of it. And they sent him to the fall league. Uh, I, when I talked to him the other day, he only allowed one hit, two walks over four scoreless innings. He struck out five. Um, his fastball is generally around 92, 94. He can touch 96. Even his catcher, Nathan Hickey, said the changeup is really special. Um, he called the fastball electric. It plays above its velocity because of some deception in there. He's got a slider as well. I don't know if he's necessarily like a top, top prospect, but I love this story of a guy getting an opportunity, taking it with both hands and continuing to build on it. You know, he's somebody who the Red Sox are definitely going to hold on to going into 2024. I don't think he's going to be like a 40 man guy or whatever, Um, but going from relative obscurity 
to now pitching on a pretty big stage in the AFL and succeeding the way he has has been really interesting. So just keep an eye on Zach Penrod, whether you're a Red Sox fan or just a fan of good baseball stories. All right, Sam, before we get to our uh, conversation for this week, your interview for this week, we've got an interesting story that it's not entirely as of right now under our jurisdiction, but a guy who will be uh, in the coming years. And one of the most interesting stories that we have seen, um, which does not come along very often, uh, and that is that the top Japanese high school power hitter and the all-time high school career home run holder in Japanese high school baseball, Rintaro Sasaki, uh, evidently will not enter the Nippon professional baseball draft where he was expected to go number one overall. And instead, according to reports coming out of Japan, uh, he has stated that he wants to play college ball in the U.S. Now, this has wide ramifications for him, for any team uh, that would be able to acquire him because they would do so now via the draft and not via uh, an international signing, which would come out of the the international pool money. And uh, especially if he'd gone the route of playing in Nippon professional baseball for five, seven years, eventually being posted. That all now is seemingly out the window uh, with Rintaro Sasaki. We're not sure where he is going to go uh, to play college baseball. He's six foot two fifty. He's got a 70 grade power tool uh, via some scout uh, scouting analysis of him already. Um, but we have never really seen a top Japanese high school prospect enter an American university to go this route. Uh, it does seem like Vanderbilt, of course, is, uh, if not the front runner, one of the front runners uh, for Rintaro Sasaki. But this is a really interesting story because it's it's pretty well unprecedented. Um, and it is almost uh, something that we don't really know how to evaluate or expect uh, results from because we haven't seen a top hitter uh, like this come over and attempt to compete in NCAA play this way. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating. And um, you say it's unprecedented. So I'm most interested in what precedent does this set, right? Like, is anybody going to follow in Sasaki's footsteps? Um, or is this just one guy who, like, finds it fascinating to come over here and play? I mean, one thing that I think is really interesting, uh, or one part of this story, his father was Shohei Otani's manager in high right. school. Right. So, like, I'm Same sure there school. might be... Yeah, there might be some connection there. There might be some discussion of like, hey, just come here. The facilities are just as good and you get a bigger. I don't know. I I would love to know what's happening behind the scenes. Um, it kind of reminds me if we're talking about things that are unprecedented and we were wondering what precedent they would set. I know. Going the other way. Yes. The Carter exact Stewart. thing that I was thinking, Carter Stewart. Yep. Yeah. Carter Former Stewart. Eighth overall with... pick uh, of the Atlanta uh, draft in 20. 20- uh, 18 and uh, Carter Stewart went the other route rather than signing with Atlanta. He went to Japan. He made his pro debut uh, with the Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks when he was just 20 years old in 2020. Uh, and he started to put together a really nice little career over there. He's also played a little bit of winter ball, uh, played in the Puerto Rican winter league in the, this past off season, 2022, 23, where he put up a 1.06 ERA in three starts. That's the only thing that I can think of. And that's the reverse of this situation. Yeah. The only difference there is like Carter Stewart went pro, right? Like the, he right. went and signed in Japan and was right. immediately pro. Now NIL throws all of this into a, a very confusing situation, right? Because you might think, well, actually there's now essentially semi-pro let's call it what it is. Like you are getting paid 
by other people to play college athletics now, which is great. Like I, I want he, college athletes to to benefit from their labor and right. you know they are popular people who people pay co- to come see. I want them benefiting from that. I have no problem with NIL stuff, um, but that makes you you should immediately think of NIL when you hear somebody coming over and playing college ath- athletics. Like, is he coming over here because he can still get paid? But he technically isn't eligible for NIL money, at least from American businesses, right? Um, because of the way the the rule is written, I think there's like a loophole there that he could get NIL money from Japan. Like Japanese companies could sponsor him, and he could get money through Japan, but he couldn't get it through here. So it's right. not. And I think he could basically only get it when he's back in Japan. He could not right. be paid that money while he's actually here playing college ball. But if he goes home, he could sort of do endorsement stuff there. That's There's precedent, at least in college athletics. Uh, Oscar Chibwe from uh, Kentucky, a basketball player, uh, had some NIL deals that he was able to complete while out of the country. Kentucky played in a tournament in the Bahamas, and he was able to, to get some NIL um, endorsement stuff done there. Um, there are also players who have used... Uh, NIL money and been able to route it toward, you know, good causes. Uh, Maddie uh, Sissoko, um, who is uh, from Mali, uh, playing basketball at Michigan State. He has built a school in his hometown in Mali from uh, money that he's been able to raise while playing here in the U.S. So there are some things um, potentially that Sasaki could do, but this is just such an interesting story that uh, really, I mean, he's a he's a mold breaker, which is very cool. And again, we'll we'll see if anybody follows in his footsteps. I wonder if people are going to immediately consider doing this now that the seal has been broken, or if they're going to wait uh, yeah. to see how he does. Like maybe he comes over, and yeah, he has a ton of power, but he hits two twenty, right. something like that, for right. two years at Vanderbilt, and he ends up being a fourth, fifth round pick. I mean that that can happen. Right. We've we've heard stories of that that stuff happening as much as raw power is in in the, the tank for him. Um, we need to see it play here stateside. So definitely. You know, if maybe other other players who are just as good over there just want to see how it goes. You want to, especially if he's going to Vanderbilt and playing in the SEC. Right. That's right. That's essentially like high A competition at this point. And it's going to be above that. Really interesting to see what the reaction is of Japanese baseball to this because uh, there's sort of a an unspoken thing with Nippon professional baseball and Major League Baseball where MLB teams don't really look at talent at the Japanese amateur level because it's such a strong pipeline to get them uh, in a Nippon professional baseball. And then if a player succeeds there and wants to come over via the posting system, that's a route that's been established Um, in other countries, you know, Korea, for example, for players who leave Korea and go to play college ball in the U S or sign professionally with U S teams, there's essentially uh, an openly stated ban for multiple years on those players returning home to play in Korea. So different federations, different leagues have different ways of looking at these things. So it'll be really interesting to see the way Japanese baseball responds to this. But this is a guy who, you know, potentially in two years, depending on how things go, this could be a legit prospect who we're talking about. Um, And so just something to to keep in mind uh, and another one of those fascinating baseball avenues that could potentially put a guy on a map sooner rather than later. Yeah, one one thing I want to add to this discussion real quick, and then we can pivot to the interview. Um, he's not exactly the first to do this. Riku Nishida also like went to a junior college and then transferred to Oregon, was an 11th round pick this year. But that's a different situation. Right. Like he, he went to JUCO. Going JUCO is different. JUCO and then went to Oregon. Um, and like I said, you know, it 
it was an 11th round pick, which it's great to be selected in the draft, no matter what. But this is not somebody we're talking about as uh, I, I think Sasaki, we should be talking about as a future first round pick right. eventually. As, he's not as, be as the pedigree in, looks right now. Right. Right. Um, he's not going to be playing in the States until 2025, which like makes this so much more enticing because like it's so interesting and I want to see it play out. But we're, we're not going to see him go to school now. It's, yeah. It's right. Not he's not until next he's year. not coming this year. It'll be next year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but you know the the ground has been softened, and I, yeah. I can't wait to see how this unfolds. Just always fascinated by all of that stuff. I mean, the way guys find their own pathways to playing baseball, how they want to do it, I just think is is so fascinating and so cool to watch in so many ways. Um, and uh, that will bring us to our uh, conversation on this week's episode of the show. Before the show, Sam, uh, you got a chance to catch up with a Duke Blue Devil. I'm demanding an answer to the question from him as to whether Duke is now a basketball or football or uh baseball school you know <laughs> I, I might sneak that in there uh it is fascinating to see how duke athletics have i don't want to say changed but like yeah the fact that just, college game day good at a lot of things to, now yeah uh i wonder what he, what he thinks of all of that from afar but grant Pauly, number 11 padres prospect is our guest on the show before the show this week um grant Pauly here in the arizona fall league playing on that Peoria team that is absolutely loaded, as I mentioned before, currently tied with Kyle Manzardo, Harry Ford, and two others uh, for the Arizona Fall League lead with three home runs. I'm just fascinated by this guy. He was a 13th round pick in 2022 coming out of Duke. Uh, so not really all that well known. All he did this year was hit 308, 393, 538 across three levels. He went from single A to high A to double A. Seemingly got better as he went up. Uh, Slight step back, I guess, from high A to double A, but still had, was slugging 500 at double A by the end of the year. Hit 23 home runs, stole 22 bases, was the only Padres minor leaguer this year to have a 2020 season. Uh, pretty sh- good defender at third, second. He's playing some outfield corners. There's just so much to dig into here. So here's my conversation now with Graham Paul. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, Graham. Well, let's just start with how is the how are you finding the uh, fall league experience so far? It's been a, a week and a half going on two weeks. You lead the league in homers with three. It seems like it's going pretty well so far. Yeah, I mean, it's been awesome. Um, obviously, a ton of great talent out here, a ton of prospects and from different orgs. Um, you know, I'm starting to find my footing, and I think, you know, with the team that we have, a lot of talent and a lot of really good guys, so that makes it a lot easier come here and you know compete and play every day yeah so it's been a lot of fun yeah and when did you find out that you were coming here um so i found out with about in three or four weeks left in the season mm-hmm. um you know you kind of have a end date in mind in the season you know we, we knew we were going to playoffs so i was really looking at forward to that and then finding out i was going to fall league after the playoffs you know i was really excited to come here and um you know compete and you know try to show more of what I can do here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with a lot of guys, we talk about it being a first full season. Now they're tacking on the full fall league. What kind of instructions did they give you to, to come here? Yeah, um, 
basically just to keep doing what I've been doing. Um, you know, I, I had a successful year and, you know, I thought I proved a lot uh, of what I can do and, you know, just trying to stay healthy and, you know, manage my body and, uh, you know, play as many positions as possible and play as much as I can. Um, that was pretty much the goal from day one this season and uh, just continue to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at what point did it feel like things were really clicking for you? Because between Lake Elsinore, Fort Wayne, San Antonio, it was almost like you were getting better as you went along. But at what point did it feel like, oh, this is a special season? Yeah. I mean, I would say, um, you know, a lot of things really clicked once I got to Fort Wayne. Um, you know, I started hitting a lot more homers and uh, a lot more hard, hard contact and, you know, just doing things that I didn't always do. Um, you know, to me, like, I was always a guy that could get on base and, you know, swing the bat well, but I kind of unlocked some more power, um, just minor swing changes and, you know, really seeing the ball well in Fort Wayne, and I think that's what propelled me the rest of the year. Yeah, I was going to ask about that power specifically. What were those swing changes? What were something you were doing in the Midwest League that you weren't in the Cal League? Um, I think – you know, picking better pitches that I could swing at um, was the first thing. And then also just, you know, focusing on elevating the ball. You know, I was grounding out a lot in Lake Elsinore and kind of getting on top of the ball. And I, I figured out how I could keep my swing, but also elevate the ball on certain pitches. And, um, you know, that unlocked more power for me. Yeah. Well, what was it that, especially on the elevation, what was that change? Um, to me, it was more just keeping the bat in the zone for as long as possible and working on my direction. Um, to me, I was always a guy who could, I had good rotation, but I sometimes would over-rotate and kind of, you know, over-swing. Um, and for me, just focusing on my direction and keeping the, you know, my direction towards center field allowed me to drive the ball to all fields. So, Yeah, and you were talking about pitch selection being better as you went up. Mm-hmm. How much did it help to, to face better quality pitching? Guys who actually know where the ball is going more, more of the time. Yeah, I think um, obviously as I went up in levels, uh, pitching got better, um, whether that be stuff or command or both. Um, and, you know, as I got kept moving up and facing those better pitches, it allowed me to see, see better pitching, which allowed me to lock in better and, you know, kind of figure out what I was good at and what I wasn't great at. And then just building off that, you know, really – while I was working on the stuff that I'm not great at, also really fine-tuning the stuff that I'm good at and, um, you know, the better pitching, something that helped, so. Yeah, and I, I want to take a step back from here. You kind of talk, touched on it a little bit, but what kind of player were you at Duke going into the draft compared to, you know, where you are now? Um, at Duke, I would say I was a, you know, high-contact guy um, who could get on base a lot, mm-hmm. and to me that was something that I never wanted to change, I think. You know, that's really valuable, especially in, like, today's game, a guy who gets on base a lot. And, you know, as the Padres, as we talk about, is, you know, getting on base 388, which was Tony Gwynn's career yeah. on base percentage. Um, so that's kind of a huge pillar in, in uh, this organization. And so for me, like, that was something that I really wanted to do this year and that, you know, I've, I've done in the past. But um, the, on the development side, it was more the, the power side. So I wanted to be able to maintain my contact and getting on base ability, but also develop that power. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what were your expectations going into the draft? Because 13th round, I mean, it's, it's an honor to be drafted anywhere, but to be taken there, what was the experience like? Um, yeah, so, I mean, I didn't really have too many expectations going to the draft. Um, you know, I, I played in the Cape uh, leading up to the draft. Uh, so after my junior year that summer, just to try to get more exposure to – know earn the opportunity to get drafted and um we have to the draft you know talking to my agent and everything um 
we weren't totally sure where I'd go. Um, I didn't really have expectations of going too high, but uh, you know, I didn't really know, and you know, it was an honor getting selected, even if it was the 13th round. And you know, once you get to Pro Bowl, pretty much anything can happen. So everyone kind of has a clean slate, um, and you know, just try to earn the spot and where I'm at today. Yeah, and you hit well too, even after the draft. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't like it, this was a huge breakout year for you. What changed? What were the Padres working with you on day one? Yeah, uh, kind of the same stuff. Like, so in college, you know, I like I said, I was a huge like contact guy. You know, I didn't swing out of the zone a lot, and I was a guy that could draw walks. Like my junior in college, I walked more than I struck out, and that was something that I truly valued. And obviously, it's a lot harder in pro ball. You see better pitching, uh, wood bats, and everything. Um, but I think from the Padre side, I think we really like focused on being able to take close pitches, being able to swing it like pitches in the heart of the zone. And um, that's just something that I want to keep working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned that 388 on base percent. I mean, that makes all the sense in the world to yeah, aim for Tony Gwynn, yeah. especially in this org. Um, but what kind of tools do they give you guys to work on that strike recognition or you know zone recognition, swing decisions, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So I think um, one, it all starts with the routine and every player is different. Um, for me, like I, I like to start with front toss, you know, feeling out my swing, feeling out my direction, and then working on like after that. Once I work, start working on pitch decision, whether that be, you know, machine work, um, you know, seeing the high lows that we see, and you know, figuring out how I can swing at the pitches in the heart of zone, take pitches on the edges, uh, stuff like that, and then also an arm. You know, sometimes I ask for like a mix, so I'll see heater and then breaking ball, or heater and then change up, um, and just being able to react to those and see those as as soon out of the hand as possible Mm -hmm. so is there anything you feel like you're laying off now better than you did in in college like um i would say that yeah i would say i'm laying off uh the high heater a little bit better as well as you know off speed out of the zone but at the same time i think i'm hitting the off speed in the zone a lot better Mm -hmm. because i think i'm able to react and see that earlier um whereas in the past like yeah i always thought i was good at hitting the heater but i would sometimes be caught off guard by an off-speed pitch but now I'm able to react to that and you know drive those pitches as well mm-hmm. yeah and just coming back to this season you talked about going to double a mm-hmm. for for that postseason run Padres put a lot of guys on that team mm-hmm. trying to get you guys all together Martorella came up with you Marcy was there Ethan Solace was on that team Merrill what was the atmosphere around that team knowing like this is kind of the future of the Padres yeah you know I so within the players you know it's a really good atmosphere because one, we're all friends, we all like each other, and you know, it's a lot easier to play and work hard when you have guys around you who are challenging you and pushing you to be the best that you can be. And I think we all wanted the best for each other regardless of whatever position we were in. Mm-hmm. As well as that staff there, um, Luke Mons is the manager, and we have Pat O'Sullivan as the hitting coach, and um, Chino as our infield guy, working with me mostly in the infield. Uh, just a great staff that, you know, we all wanted the best for each other. We wanted to win, and you know, those two go hand in hand. So, really good. Yeah, and was that something you guys talked about? Of like in that locker room, hey, this is this is the core of the harm system. Um, it was kind of a unspoken thing. Um, you know, it's hard to you know put too much pressure on each other, like oneself, to say, hey, like I have to do this, this, and this to you know help the Padres win. Um, we kind of all just put on our work, focus on each other, like, as much as we focus on 
like as much as I focus on myself, I wanted the person next to me to succeed. And, you know, I think that's what's going to take us somewhere in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you climbing three levels is, is a successful season no matter what the numbers would be. But what were your goals coming into this year? Um, you know, at the beginning of the year, I wanted to just, you know, play well and uh, work hard as possible. Like, every time I stepped out into the field, I wanted to be able to say that I was the hardest worker on that field. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the baseball side, it will take care of itself if, if you work hard. And me personally, you know, I've always been the kind of guy that wants to be the hardest worker in the room wherever I'm at. And I think not only did that help me, but I also think that drove a lot of other guys um, in our work to want to get better, want to work out more in the weight room, um, just the little things that matter. So, Yeah, and you were talking before about moving around defensively between third base, second base, who played the corner outfield spots here. What is that? How does that change for you day to day? Like how much working out do you have to do in all – four of those different spots yeah I would say that um in the day-to-day so like in season it's hard to you know put it spread spread yourself out um I think day-to-day I would try to focus on one thing and you know get really good at that and then the next day it might be something else but you're you're never perfect anywhere so like for me if I was playing third base that day you know I'd really focus on my routine at third base and you know refining that and getting as good as I can at the little things that I'm trying to work on um left the outfield to me is a newer position to me so uh, you know I spend a lot of time shagging whether it's shagging BP or getting you know reads off the fungo stuff like that um just to get as many reps as possible yeah and when was the last time you played outfield before in the pros <laughs> it's uh, it's been a while I didn't, <laughs> I didn't play at all in college um I, in college I really only played third base and second base right. um even in high school, I didn't play outfield. I was more, you know, when I was younger, uh, you know, I, as a little kid, I'd take some reps out there and whatnot. But, you know, it's been a while, and I think me getting more reps, getting more reads, I think that's going to help me in the long run. And I think, you know, very soon I, I'm going to feel a lot more comfortable out there. and can. Right now I'm a lot more comfortable at third and second, but I think with work and reps that I'll be – comfortable out there as well mm-hmm. yeah and when did San Diego come to you with that idea of like hey we want to at least try you out there um so the end of last year the end of last year when I first got drafted um and I was in Lake Elsinore our low A team I started getting some reps out there but it wasn't really a like a focus yet um you know it was kind of just let's see what what I can do and um you know we'll go from there and then once I got here this year um spring training and uh strength camps we had earlier this year it was more of a focus to maybe get some reps there um in the beginning of the year I really only played the infield um because that's where I was most comfortable and while I was taking reps in the outfield you know I wasn't really ready to get game reps there yet um but as the season went on and you know I felt more comfortable out there and I was getting more reps um it became a real possibility for me to you know play outfield in games and that's what happened towards the end of the year and you know I, I didn't get a ton of game reps out there but I'm getting a lot more out there now in the fall league so um something that's cool and something that I want to continue to work on mm-hmm. were they explicit about that of like hey this is where the opportunity is going to be for you because there's a pretty big Manny Machado sized shadow over third base in this organization yeah I mean um you know they haven't said anything about like hey this is your only opportunity is to play outfield or anything like that mm-hmm. it's to me like playing as many positions as possible and being athletic as possible is very valuable in today's game um and 
to me, like I want to, I personally want to be able to play everywhere, and I think that's my best chance of making the big leagues um, for the Padres. So that's pretty much the goal right now is to just get as good as possible everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. And all right, we'll we'll end on this one. Duke football this year is going off, and obviously it's known as a basketball school. You played baseball there. What is Duke athletics like? What is the moment of Duke athletics right now? Yeah, um, I think it's at an all time high. Honestly. Uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun to watch. You know, I was watching, I've been watching most of the games this year and watched the Duke Notre Dame game about a week oh, and a half right, ago, right. which, um, you know, I think that Duke football team is really good. And I think Coach Elko, um, who this is his second year with the program, has done a great job there. And I think Duke's more than just a, a basketball school for what it's known for. Um, I think, and even Duke baseball, you know, past six years or so you know multiple regionals multiple super regionals i think it's really making a case for a strong all-around school um for athletics and i think that's going to continue going forward do you ever think you would see college game day in durham (laughs) uh no i I mean you never really know i didn't didn't really expect it but obviously for the first time in history seeing that that was really cool knowing that um i went there and you know that program has done a lot to get to where it is yeah all right Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion team. We interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in Radio Land must identify the legitimate historical ball club or player hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One once put on his uniform day after day. The others had no body to adorn in any way whatsoever at any time. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball players did at one time exist. A. Grim Mason. B. Sneer Weaver. C. Glum Barber. You got this one right if you've ever dealt with an unhappy bricklayer, as the correct answer is A. Grim Mason, who played across three minor league circuits from 1961 to 1963. 
Named Oregon State's most valuable player for the 61 collegiate season, Mason, who'd also been a tailback on the gridiron for the Beavers, had a rock-solid foundation upon which to build a career. In fact, as an amateur, Mason set his name in stone by hitting the first homer all the way out of Washington State's Bailey Field in 1959. Things were looking cheery for Grimm when he signed a professional contract in June of 61. He liked playing ball in college, and in the minors, Mason would find mortar love. Yet, there was a note of grim foreboding in Grimm's pro deal. Mason bricked his chances of playing for a winner by inking a contract with the upstart New York Mets, who were building toward joining the National League in 62. Assigned to the 61 Raleigh Capitals in the Carolina League, Mason tried to put things together under the management of former Cardinals and Yankees great Eno Slaughter. But the Capitals were decidedly lowercase that year, going 58-80, and 80, even as Grimm optimistically amassed 15 extra base hits in 65 games. Mason, a California native, got to spend the next season in his home state, making the Cal League's All-Star team for 1962 while batting 347 with 17 dingers. But a sporting news article from the spring of 1963 mentions that Mason had undergone football-related surgeries on both knees at one point. And even as he earned notice for his hitting and reports surfaced that the Mets wanted to see him play third base, he started that season back with Raleigh. He again demolished the ball at the lower level, but he hit 250 with Buffalo during up-and-back stints in the International League. In 64, Grimm's baseball future began to look bleak. He was among nine Buffalo players who balked at salary offers for the year and held out. By the end of May, he was optioned to Tacoma without having appeared in a game. And despite his offensive gifts, there's no record that he ever appeared in another pro game again either. And that's how Grim Mason cemented his place in baseball. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these tasty teams got eaten up in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Battle Creek Graham Slammers. B. The Montpelier Goldfish. C. The Newton Fig Munchers. Want to know the answer? Get snacking. Or tune to the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is going leaf-peeping, and I've got to close my curtain. Big thanks uh, not only to Grant Pauly of the San Diego Padres, but to Josh Jackson for stopping by the show as well with Ghosts of the Miners. And uh, final segment for this week's episode of the show before the show. We know three of the participating league championship series teams by next week. We will obviously know all of them. We may have a very good line on what our world series matchup will look like. Uh, Sam, I want some predictions here. We've got three teams already in Texas and Houston in the American league, Arizona and the winner of Atlanta, Philadelphia in the national league. Who you got? Yeah. So I, I think it's, it's always fascinating to me to start to think about it this way as the postseason gets narrower and narrower. Like one of our worst World Series champs this year is going to be the Rangers, Astros, Phillies, Braves, or D-backs. That's yeah. it. 
It's one of those five teams. There's nobody Man, I do love, coming in from the top rope and just I being love like, oh, it's us, actually. The MLB ad campaign for this year, who's going to be the one, I think is so awesome. So yeah. it gives me it gives me feels of, you know, every year the NHL does a great job with that, of like who will be the person to hoist the cup for the first time. This year's MLB postseason ad campaign, I think, is phenomenal. And yeah, yeah. now we're down to five, and who's going to be the one? Who's going to be the one? And by the time you're listening to this, we might be down to four. Um, so for LCS predictions, I am going to go with the Rangers over the Astros and the Phillies over the D-backs, wow. which is like, I'm adding some difficulty here because the, as we're speaking, the Phillies have not clinched the NLDS yet, although they hold a 2-1 lead um, and look like they are on their way to go heading back to the NLCS. The Rangers over the Astros, I do that because I think the Rangers have some interesting pitching. They've got Nate Eovaldi, who knows how to pitch yeah. in the postseason incredibly well, as we saw the other day. Um, their lineup is really long in an interesting way, although they keep hitting interesting guys third. I don't I don't quite get it. Uh, why like Mitch Garver is hitting third, although he did come through in the clutch the other day, so I don't want to take anything away from him. Um, but Evan Carter... Yeah, I'm just so interested by that guy. I talked to him in Frisco back in April. He's just so level-headed. We've heard about this all the time on the broadcast. He doesn't seem to know that he's playing on the biggest stage possible. He yeah. does know. I guarantee you he knows. But he's playing the same way he is, or he did play in the Texas League when I saw him. No moment is too big for him. He doesn't expand the zone. And he's playing with Corey Seager, who I think just set a DS record for walks in a series breaking a record by the way held by Barry Bonds <laughs> like that's no small thing um because guys don't want to pitch to Corey Seager Marcus Semyon is always a threat Josh Young another one of their really talented guys I mean the Astros lineup is loaded in itself and I get that and they can just kind of cut you many different ways pitching right. wise and having Justin Verlander was a big get for them I just think the Rangers are so interesting right now and heading in the right direction everything's clicking at the right time um, so I, I'm going to the Rangers on that side and Phillies. We kind of already talked about this, but again, a dynamic lineup. Um, they've shown that they can work in a bullpen situation. They have a few starters that are interesting in Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola. Um, I think all the pieces are there for the Phillies to be a postseason team. Like they, they weren't necessarily great during the regular season. They would have won the division if they were, but they are just so built for this moment between yeah. their bullpen and their, their lineup. Uh, I, that's the way I'm going. My heart uh, wants to join you with Phillies Rangers. My brain is telling me it's going to be a rematch Phillies Astros, uh, which I think would be a fun series. I don't, I will say this, and we live in a world where everybody's got to have a hot take about TV ratings for some reason. I don't know what America's appetite is for the Houston Astros anymore. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, Astros fans love it that way. I don't blame them at all. Um, but I, you know, uh, I'm not sure how excited the viewing public is going to be about potentially watching the Houston Astros in the World Series again uh, outside of Houston. I'm not saying that I feel that way. Astros fans don't come at me. Um, I, I do have... Such a soft spot for the Texas Rangers. I'm so happy for Bruce Bochy. Um, just such an awesome story for him to be able to come back, you know, out of baseball for a little while. 
I remember last year, the, the world baseball classic qualifier, uh, asking him if, you know, managing France was, uh, is that going to wet the whistle? You're going to want to get back into this. And I remember Bruce Bochy saying something to the effect of like, I'm going to have to talk to my wife. Cause that's going to be a hard sell. <laughs> and now here he is. He's in the American league championship series. It's just so awesome. And also <laughs> resurrecting a team that, I mean, last year we talked about like, how are the Texas Rangers this bad? And the fact that you put somebody in that spot, which really honestly is what I thought Bob Melvin was going to be in San Diego. Also, I thought like, that's the missing piece. That's the last thing you need. And obviously there's a whole lot going on uh, with Bob Melvin and AJ Preller and everything else in San Diego. But I am really happy for Bruce Bochy. Spent one season working with the Rangers uh, back when I was in the minors. I loved that organization. So my heart is a little bit uh, behind the Texas Rangers. The Astros are just, I mean... Nobody has experience like that team and like that core. Uh, and that's, that is really tough to take down. Um, so yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to hedge my bets. I don't, sorry, D-backs fans. This is my second time going after you in this podcast, which I really am not intending to do. I don't see the D-backs making it through. I think, I think whoever comes out of that other series will take down the D-backs, but um, man, what a stepping stone season for, for Arizona though. Yeah. I mean, if there's anybody who I think is ready to go supernova, it's Corbin Carroll. Yeah. Man. How, the, the what an loves, arrival for him. He is yeah. he is unbelievable, man. And we've been on him for a while as prospect people, but God, to see what Corbin Carroll has done in the spotlight is so cool. Because he loves it. And I don't mean that from like a all eyes on me. Dude. Right. But he thrives under he thrives like, in it. This is my moment and I'm going to yep. take advantage of it. Um, he's done that. At every stop, the only thing that slowed him down was that shoulder injury a few years right. ago. And then they immediately were like, hey, we see something in you. We want you to start scouting MLB games. Right. And just like sitting behind home plate with our scouts and trying to understand the game. And he really took that to heart. And I mean, the balls he sends into the stands, they're, I don't want to say they're Stanton-esque, but like there's. <laughs> they look like they're hit by somebody much bigger. He's like, uh, a, he's like the old... Uh cliche baseball but when he hits them they stay hit you know what i mean yes like he doesn't hit yeah. a whole lot cheaply no yeah no so it, it, like if there's somebody who can just take a series and be like we're pushing our way through here with zach allen with merrill kelly with some of those bullpen bases that we talked about before like there's something there i just think the other two teams are a little bit too loaded and like i said earlier i think the phillies are really built for this moment, for this type of atmosphere, not necessarily for a regular season, but we are going to get past you in a five game series and a seven game series. Cause that's what we're geared for. One quick thing on Bruce Bochy before we go, Tyler, that you were talking about. One thing that stood out to me, I think it was a quote from Chris Young, Rangers executive talking about how the best managers aren't ones who just have good strategies and stick with them. They're the ones who adapt, who look at the game and, and grow with the game and learn with the game. Yeah, I think that's what Bruce Bochy is. Bruce yeah. Bochy, like he obviously is handling his clubhouse well. There's all sorts of stories out there about how they've bonded around Creed. So he's <laughs> he's allowing a certain that. atmosphere to fester. You know, he, he's not coming in here and being like, "We're the '90s are over. We're not playing anymore of this garbage." I think that's um, the accurate term for uh, Creed, by the way, festering. I do think that I like I like that as a description. Anyway. Sure. I guess I should say early 2000s. They weren't quite 90s. Yeah, they were. Oh, I think they were like, I think higher was uh, was 1999. Okay, there we go. Also, I I just can't. The only team that I and most other people of a certain age will ever identify Creed with is the Marlins. Because of of course, Will Soar song. 
I mean, come on, Marlins. All right, all right. We don't need to be paying Craig royalties on this podcast. So why are you, you, you keep saying? You don't think Scott Stapp is tuning into this podcast right now, Sam? Is His lawyers saying? will be. We don't. We don't need the lawyers on us. We don't have Creed money. <laughs> Do you think Creed has a lot of money? <laughs> I think that's the other. I think they would like a lot of money if you keep singing. That's all I'm saying. Oh man. Uh, I also, one other point I want to make about Corbin Carroll. Um, and I actually, I just Google image search Corbin Carroll, like a few rows down, there was a picture of him in a, in a hops uniform, a Hillsborough hops uniform. And I clicked on it and said, D backs Corbin Carroll stays hot for hops. And I thought, I think I wrote that story. And then I clicked on it and I did. Um, but, uh, Corbin Carroll, um, he, he is rocking a very, good Luis Gonzalez early 2000s-esque goatee like that goatee is it's got some major like 2002 vibes to it and no, again no I'm don't not, say 2002 you, you know the year you should be saying 2001 2001 i should yeah. be saying that i should be saying that. you should be I'm, saying I'm saying from like a like a fashion-ish uh facial hair choice standpoint it's a very impressive goatee not what I would it go is. with in in this day and age. I've I've long rocked the full beard, but you know there was a time in the early two thousands when I was like, yeah, man, I'll go goatee on this. And Corbin Carroll, he's there. I I admire it. No, it's very good. And and seeing him jump into the pool last night, <laughs> I, know, I, I think he was the first one in the pool, just like immediately jumping in backwards. Just embr- I love the pool party cool. aspect. That atmosphere at Chase Field is amazing. So yeah, at least that end of the game stuff. Yeah, the end of the game, the the celebration uh, was pretty cool. If you have a a unique ballpark feature, embrace it with yourself. Absolutely. Um. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you on that. Uh. So those are our predictions. We'll see by next week how wrong we are, uh, or how right we are. I I'm obviously the eternal optimist. Um. You can get in touch with us podcast at milb.com, and uh, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show. Before the show for Sam Dykstra in Arizona, Benjamin Hill in New York City, and everyone else. My name is Tyler Mon. We will catch you next week.